Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. First of all today, I found a wonderful podcast I'd like to recommend to all of you. It is called The Art of Crime and covers the link between art and crime. The first episodes are all about Jack the Ripper and famous artists involved or possibly linked to Jack himself. And I know if you listen to The Age of Victoria, you will enjoy them. The host, Gavin, is a qualified historian and his doctoral thesis was on horror theatre between 1794 and 1931. So right in our period and beyond, you can visit the Art of Crime website at www.artofcrimepodcast.com for show notes and full transcripts of every episode. And he's available in the usual places. He's kindly sent us a promo so you can get a feel for his show. Enjoy. In 1888, Jack the Ripper murdered five women in Whitechapel. More than a century later, we haven't given up on unmasking the perpetrator. My name's Gavin Whitehead, and I'm the host of a new history podcast, The Art of Crime. It explores the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. Season one is titled The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. It profiles six renowned artists who have been named as Ripper candidates. Lewis Carroll is the one best known to us today. As we meet each artist, we'll find out what it was like to work in their trades in the Victorian period and how their accomplishments propelled them to fame. One of them, wigmaker Willie Clarkson, supplied actor Henry Irving with a staggering 1,100 handmade wigs for his inaugural North American tour. We'll also learn about the public's reaction to the murders and consider why artists, especially great artists, have proven so attractive as Ripper candidates. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Next, I had a lovely five-star review on Apple Podcasts from Aging USA. Quote, I stumbled on this podcast by happenstance, but am thrilled. I began at the beginning and have listened to two years' worth of episodes within the last week. Organising my seven-year-old son's extensive Lego collection, because you can't build properly if you aren't able to find the red transparent 2 by 2 brick immediately, has been less daunting and, dare I say, delightful, with Chris's lovely, calming voice and extensive knowledge. Thanks so much. End quote. I really hope you are wearing slippers around Lego. It is painful stuff in the morning. I've had many fun years with Lego and my kids. It is a timeless classic. I'm also glad the show is binge worthy and I hope you have years of happy listening ahead. Thank you. I've also had a review from Platypus79 on Podchaser. I love that username so much, by the way. Quote, I enjoy the unhurried, detail-oriented writing of this podcast. If you want to hear a finely textured sense of what it might have felt like to live in Victorian Britain, this show is hard to beat. It covers a surprisingly wide array of topics, from the class system, to fashion, to Christmas rituals, in a clever and entirely unpretentious manner. The episodes are long, but they seem to drop only once a month so you have plenty of time to finish before the next one appears in your feed. All of the host's efforts go into research and writing, not bells and whistles, and it shows. 
It is a truly unique example of the history podcast genre, and one I always recommend highly to friends. End quote. Thank you. And it is one of the best things you can do for any podcaster is to spontaneously recommend their show. So I really appreciate that. And honestly, if I won the lottery, I would be doing this full time and you would get shows a lot more often. But such is life. I've also had some lovely listener emails and messages about my special episode on the death of Queen Elizabeth II. A few of you noticed I referenced the future king as King William III, not King William V. I have no idea how I forgot the famous William III and, of course, the sailor king William IV, who appeared in many episodes and from whom Victoria inherited the throne. So yes, it was a moment of sheer stupidity and I am happy to say that we await the future King William V being well. Now then, a long time ago on this podcast, I talked about the series of history quakes we were going to see at the beginning of the Victorian era. We covered the creation of the new settler empire and the transition to the new energy form of coal and steam, then the railways. We are now going to start with one of the biggest in the whole history of human civilization, Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution by natural selection. This might surprise you. Sure, it is a clever bit of science and it helped us understand things a bit better, but greatest historical earthquake ever? More than breaking the energy ceiling or founding the first empire with truly worldwide influence? Surely not. I'm going to argue it is. I will give you some disclaimers now. Firstly, I am an atheist and became one by way of Richard Dawkins and Darwin, as well as my reading of philosophy. Secondly, I was raised in a Western nation that is mostly post-Christian. Thirdly, I am a kind of reductive materialist, so I don't subscribe to metaphysical or spiritualist solutions to understanding problems. That means I am coming from this from a certain point of view. But I wanted to let you know my background so that you were aware of it. I should also mention that I have read the Bible and did some biblical studies as part of my degree, which also covered elements of Islam and Buddhism, as well as classical philosophy and the philosophy of the mind. As always, I will present what happened as impartially as possible and show why Darwin had the impact he did and he continues to have. I will also try to show you the many human elements to the story, as well as the usual fascinating facts. When you really understand Darwin and his theory, you usually come to one dazzling conclusion, that humans were not created by any deity. No matter what the religion, Christianity, Hinduism, paganism, humans and animals are always the creation of God in some form, whether directly or under his or the pantheon's influence. Darwin explained the mechanism and proved that all natural creatures came to existence by natural means. Suddenly, for the first time, humanity was detached from a creator. Before Darwin, humans were shaped by God or the gods. After Darwin, humans are detached from any god. Darwin made humans into normal animals. 
Darwin, therefore, when understood, also killed the basis of biblical literalism. Darwin certainly didn't invent the idea of evolution itself. Debate over whether plants and animals evolved was ongoing before Darwin. What Darwin would do is to explain and prove the mechanism of evolution, ground it scientifically, make it falsifiable, and eventually it would be vindicated by genetics. Modern evolutionary theory is not purely Darwinian, but instead incorporates the key planks of Darwin with modern genetics and up-to-date anatomical and fossil knowledge. The fact Darwin was right about so much is absolutely staggering. Darwinian theory does not mean the automatic conclusion that God in some form doesn't exist, or that evolutionary theory can't coexist with Christianity. After all, if you are more of a Newtonian Christian and believe God to be the original prime motivator of the cosmos, nothing about evolution causes a problem. God continues to set creation into motion and how the creatures in the creation come to exist is entirely down to the laws he creates in the first place. Likewise, if you believe in Christ or God, however you conceive of him or her to be, because of personal revelation, nothing in Darwin's theory will be a problem either. Your faith is rooted in your personal experience with the divine, and therefore evolution is a side issue. If you are a Christian, but not a biblical literalist, you can also accommodate evolution just fine, as long as you are not too strict on your biblical definitions. But if you are from any tradition that requires a very literal belief that God in some form created humans directly or influenced the shape or form of any living organism, you will have much, much bigger problems with Darwin's theory of evolution, since it is explicitly about random variation in a population breeding more successfully with an environment and inherently contains elements of randomness. At this point, I'm sure I hardly need to point out that most Victorians were very much closer to biblical literalists than most people you will meet today, and Darwin's views were exceptionally novel and shocking. Saying God planned evolution is not compatible with Darwinism. This is a very, very big problem for Christian literalism in general, and for the Victorians in particular. For strict biblical literalists, the biblical timeline of the world is too short for evolution to work in. Instead, Adam and Eve are the first humans, and they create sin by disobeying God and eating from the forbidden fruit. This is the original sin and is the origin of all sins, which Jesus needs to be incarnated to save humanity from. Except if evolution is accepted as true, then there is no Adam and Eve, or original sin, or Garden of Eden. This kicks out a fundamental foundation of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam if they are practiced literally. According to philosopher Daniel Dennett, in his fascinating book Darwin's Dangerous Idea, it goes further. It kicks out another fundamental belief humans cling to deep down, that minds are special. 
and there was a first mind to get it started. After Darwin, the human mind was no longer a special entity that interacted somehow with the human brain, perhaps created by a vast superintelligence. Instead, it was the outcome of various mutations that led to improved performance of proto-brains being shaped by conditions to become more intelligent and self-aware. According to Dennett, before Darwin, the mind was seen as special, as philosophers John Locke and later David Hume set out. The long-standing philosophical and theological idea underpinning Western civilization and intrinsically most others, that nothing can come from nothing and thought cannot arrive from a non-thinking thing, so there must have been a directing mind to create order and matter. Only a mind can think, and so a mind must influence the brain to perform actions. Therefore, to influence the original matter of the universe, there must have been a mind and thought before inert matter, ergo God. I'm really over-summarising some very, very dense philosophical texts here, but this isn't the History of Philosophy of the Mind podcast. Darwin gave the alternative system for the creation of minds and complex life without needing a higher mind to get it started. For us, in the post-Darwin world, the idea of the mind being a product of the brain and coming after matter was created is not too hard to grasp. For most of human history, thinking was a unique link to the divine and not reducible to a byproduct of later stage evolution. The mechanism of natural selection also required the acceptance of the concept of extinction, not just as a rare event as specified in the Bible by way of God's judgment, but rather as a frequent and natural event. Worse for the Victorians, this whole theory implied that not only was man not made in God's image, but that evolution could one day mean people might change and no longer look like they did now. Species would not be immutable, fixed as God made them, but temporary, changing, and always with the potential for extinction, a very far cry from being made in God's image and given dominion over the beasts of land and in the sea. It also brought into sharp focus the concepts of interdependence and ecosystems. As you come to know the real Charles Darwin, you will see a highly intelligent man who was deeply thoughtful, who cared about the poor in many ways, who hated slavery with a passion, and who advocated for much greater involvement of science in government. As he started his career, he certainly never expected to overturn the fundamental mental worldview of Western civilization, or to give the philosophical bedrock to the much misunderstood drivel of social Darwinism, or much other nonsense wrongly ascribed to Darwin's theories. Yet, he was also against birth control, and increasingly came to believe in a hierarchy of civilizations and the benefits of colonization. Despite the growth of social Darwinism and the idea of survival of the fittest being applied or misapplied to these societies, he remained committed to Victorian optimism 
saying, quote, We cannot check our sympathy, even the urging of hard reason, without deterioration in the noblest parts of our nature. If we were intentionally to neglect the weak and the helpless, it could only be for a contingent benefit of an overwhelming present evil. End quote. To get started, we need to go back then to a theology student from Cambridge University called Charles Darwin as he got ready for his backup career in the church. Born in February 1809, his mother had died when he was young. He had had a fairly unremarkable childhood. He liked long, solitary walks, went to a mediocre school, and was close enough home to run away from the boarding house to see his family often. The school tried to cram him full of classical education and languages. Darwin noted he was dreadful at learning foreign languages. The school and his father considered him below average achievement and intelligence. English education has always overvalued the classics and traditional syllabuses, which was unfortunate since Darwin seemed to excel with a private tutor who taught him Euclid or when his uncle taught him about barometrics. He also learnt to shoot extremely well, collected minerals, read Shakespearean poetry. His intellectually curious mind was not suited to the straitjacket of early 19th century formal education. Whilst his father expressed disappointment and accused his son of only being interested in shooting, playing with dogs and rat-catching with said dogs, they loved each other deeply. Luckily, not only did Darwin self-educate himself about birds and many other things, but his older brother, Thomas, began experimenting with chemistry. Darwin was so enthusiastic that he read several chemistry books, helped set up the lab, and became an assistant. So novel was his interest in chemistry that the other schoolboys nicknamed him Gas. The school headmaster was horrified to learn that Darwin was involved in extracurricular learning, especially in a subject he considered a total waste of time. If a student wanted to learn something outside school hours for some unfathomable reason, why not read more Virgil or Ovid? A gentleman didn't need to bother with modern learning when there were ancient Greek and Roman texts to enjoy. The headmaster gave Darwin a dressing down, calling him in Latin poco curante, or a small, insignificant and worthless person. Darwin was withdrawn from the school in 1825 and was deemed unsuccessful. I hope that reassures those of you who struggled at school and are looking for some bright spots on the horizon. If you graduate, you will have done better than Darwin. His father was a gifted doctor, so Darwin was sent to university to try to get him into medicine instead. Normally, high school dropouts would have had trouble becoming doctors, but since schools were about classical learning, there weren't actually much help in preparing someone for a career in medicine anyway. Despite some talent for medicine at university, he didn't really enjoy it. In fact, he was understandably horrified after seeing a pre-anesthesia surgery on a child. Luckily, whilst at university, he did make friends 
with some natural scientists and was introduced to Lamarck's work on evolution. He was willing to learn from anyone who knew about nature, no matter what their academic attainment. According to his autobiography, quote, By the way, a Negro lived in Edinburgh who had travelled with Waterton and gained his livelihood by stuffing birds, which he did excellently. He gave me lessons, and I often used to sit with him, for he was a very pleasant and intelligent man. End quote. At his father's suggestion, he switched to training for the church, because that was always a good last resort for fairly lazy middle class men whose parents despaired of them getting on with serious work and not getting distracted by silly hobbies. At least the church left plenty of time for riding, hunting and drinking, which the young Darwin indulged in with gusto, along with the fashionable gentlemanly habit of collecting beetles. It would also be perfect for his growing interest in geology. Probably most people would have written him off as not likely to achieve anything hugely memorable. Although the genuine scientists who met him were always impressed and weren't quite so quick to make that assumption. He was keen enough on naturalism to try to organise a trip to Tenerife like his hero Humboldt, but it fell through. Instead, Darwin was given a geological tour of Wales by the Reverend Adam Sedgwick, who was explaining the evidence of God's design at the suggestion of Reverend John Henslow, who was a strong proponent of student field trips to study botany. Darwin adored Henslow, who was a great scientific communicator and widely regarded as the closest thing a scientist could be to a saint. He had an easygoing charm and treated everyone with gentle courtesy, delighting in helping and educating students like Darwin. You may wonder, given what was about to unfold, if the two deeply religious men might well have wished Charles had stayed at Cambridge. Cedric did teach Darwin the basics of field geology, which would be extremely useful to him. When Darwin returned from Wales, he found Henslow had kindly recommended him to Commander Robert Fitzroy as a scientific gentleman adventurer companion. Darwin seemed ideal to make an even bigger field trip. He was a bit of a dreamer and had enjoyed books on exploration, so an invitation by a Royal Naval officer travel as a gentleman's companion to prevent the captain going mad with boredom on a long voyage seemed ideal, although it took a visit from his uncle Josiah Wedgwood of Wedgwood pottery fame to fully convince him. The Admiralty had ordered the HMS Beagle to survey the coast of South America during two-year voyages. The plan was to sail south to the Canary Islands, then to Cape Verde, off Africa, then crossed to Brazil, then down the coast to the Strait of Magellan and up via Valparaiso, turn and make for the Galapagos Islands, push on to Tahiti, then down via Sydney, Van Diemen's Lands and to the Keeling Islands, push across the Indian Ocean to Mauritius, touch the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, up to St Helena, back across to Brazil, then up home to the UK via the Azores. That's a staggeringly long trip, especially as it was pre-refrigeration and done entirely under sail. 
without radios and almost no chance of backup. It certainly wasn't a voyage just to take Darwin for a little trip to the Galapagos Islands, as some modern documentaries make it sound. This was serious, dangerous voyaging, the kind that regularly killed people. The Admiralty were doing it for science, but more importantly, to create navigational charts for shipping. Ultimately, the voyage would take five years. They ventured into areas that were almost untouched by Europe, and in some cases, untouched by humans. Their five-year mission was indeed seeking out new life forms. Throughout the voyage, Darwin jotted away in his notebook just the work of actually cataloguing his findings, cross-referencing them, and assigning them to taxonomies was an incredible task. After all, pencil notes can't be searched by keyword. But everything went in, including sea temperatures, tides, weather, and so much more. The captain was a young officer who wanted a young, intelligent companion. Darwin's plan was to spend two years aboard ship doing botany, then return to his religious studies. Yes, life seemed mapped out. It might have some exciting overseas travel, but ultimately the name of Charles Darwin, theology graduate, priest and part-time botanist, would surely only appear in church records and some interesting journals about beetles. But events meant that Charles Darwin would be recognised as one of the greatest scientific minds in history. His discoveries were immense and varied. The theory of evolution by natural selection was only one of the crowning glories. Some of his other seminal works were a nearly spot-on theory of coral reef formation, the discovery of thousands of species of animals and plenty of dinosaurs, work on orchids, earthworms and sexual selection. When he eventually stepped off the beagle after the five-year journey that was packed with adventure, he would become a fellow of the Royal Society and publish a book of his diaries of the journey that were a sensation in 1830. As Victoria was newly queen, he seemed to have achieved amazing things, but his greatest work would not be published until 1859. He had formed his groundbreaking theory on evolution by 1839 but it would be a long road till it became public. It was actually a long road just to get HMS Beagle underway. They say every journey begins with a single step, but HMS Beagle and the weather dragged their feet. Bad weather kept the expedition trapped in England and Darwin was marooned. Not that HMS Beagle herself was a top-of-the-line vessel either. She was one of the Cherokee class of 10-gun brigs, but had had an extra mast fitted at some point to convert her to a bark. She was only 90 feet long, cramming 75 people aboard, and like all of her class of small ships, she was thoroughly unloved and sailed badly. Ships like her saw duties across the world on anti-slavery work, running escorts, conducting surveys, and making her crew's life miserable. She was cramped, and originally, she didn't have any skylights for her main decking, just open companionways or hatches, so in bad weather, she was either open to the elements, or had to be battened down tight. 
That would mean being in the dark, below decks, in the Atlantic, or in tropical storms, with no ventilation. Her range was limited to three months cruising without resupply, and her handling was so awful that her whole class of ships were nicknamed Coffin Rigs. One admiral, who served on them as a young officer, noted they easily went underwater at the bow, and then turned and wallowed, broadside on, to large waves. Literally the most dangerous thing a ship can do in a storm. To add insult to injury, being a square wigger, even with her bark-style sail conversion, meant she couldn't sail close to the wind, which was a huge problem if you needed to sail in narrow passages with changeable winds, like, say, round the coast of South America and round the Cape of Good Hope. Of the whole class, only one ship was lost to enemy action, but 26 out of the 106 built were lost in bad weather. Darwin, one of the most important figures in history, was about to sail through some of the roughest, most dangerous seas on earth in the coffin brig HMS Beagle. If you offered me a lottery winnings worth of money to go on HMS Beagle, I would do it, and I would suggest you are equally reticent. Luckily, Captain Fitzroy was a good seaman. He learnt how to trim the sails and counter the worst of HMS Beagle's handling. He frequently refused to use her for surveying work close to shore. Despite being on a surveying mission, HMS Beagle's class was dangerous to use too close to the shore. Fitzroy got into the habit of hiring better suited vessels to do that work, only for the Admiralty to later refuse to reinforce him on the grounds they had given him a perfectly good survey vessel, HMS Beagle, although the admirals weren't sailing on her at the time. Also luckily, the Beagle had been through a refit, which had added a raised poop deck with stern cabin and forecastle. The forecastle reduced the risk of waves breaking over the bow and slightly improved her handling. The stern cabin built into the poop deck meant more space and light for the survey charts and science. The extra space meant Fitzroy could invite a naturalist, assuming he could find one, and he was lucky that Henslow and Wedgwood managed to provide Darwin after adequate persuasion. When a couple of officers left, Darwin got extra space and had his hammock under a newly fitted skylight, with a few books, including The Principles of Geology and Milton's Paradise Lost. He also carried his pistols and hunting guns, plus a hand lens, blow dart, microscope, gonometer, and a magnet. On a positive note, the extremely cramped conditions meant the crew knew each other intimately. The ship could carry 19 tons of water in the new ultra-modern iron casks, which in 1815 had replaced the old-style water barrels so beloved of Hollywood loathed by ship's crews. Sailors found their water now lasted a lot, lot longer. The addition of the poop deck meant extra height to perform scientific observations and the overhang from it onto the main deck protected the wheel operator and the compasses in bad weather. As the Georgian age moved towards the Victorian era, new, unheard of luxuries began to appear. Preserved food. 
Instead of endless hard tack and maggot-ridden biscuit, tinned and preserved meat and soup began to appear. As a surgeon on HMS Beagle's sister ship said, quote, The preserved mutton is excellent and makes an admirable pie, but the beef is insipid and overboiled. The soup's a capital and afforded us an excellent meal. The sight, moreover, of fresh English meat on the table went far to cheer us midst our gloomy solitude. End quote. It wasn't wonderful, but cans of soup and lime juice, combined with Fitzroy's focus on avoiding scurvy, meant the crew were reasonably healthy by the admittedly low standards of the Georgian Royal Navy. HMS Beagle had already made one survey voyage to South America. Her previous commander committed suicide, and Lieutenant Fitzroy had stepped up mid-voyage. He returned and persuaded the Admiralty to do the full refit on her, undertake a second voyage. He ran up a huge bill and annoyed the Admiralty with the constant delays, but it was worth it. He increased her deck heights by up to 12 inches, so they allowed people to stand upright below decks. He improved the internal bracings, added extra reinforcement and extra coatings to her bottom, fitted prototype lightning conductors, a new style of rudder, a new style whaleboat he had designed, an all-weather galley stove to allow hot food during storms, and extra anchors, sails, and strengthened rigging. If there was an innovation available, Fitzroy wanted it. As a side note, he also got the Navy to adopt the word dinghy for a small boat instead of the previous word jolly boat. Dinghy was originally an Indian word used for boats only by the Honourable East India Company. He also got the Navy to start using the word port to go with starboard before Fitzroy. The terms were starboard and larboard with high risk of confusion. I'm going into some detail on Fitzroy. Firstly, because I find these little tidbits fascinating. Secondly, because this is quite impressive from a junior officer and probably was a big part of why they came back alive. And thirdly, because Fitzroy is often vilified by Darwin fans because of his religious mania in later life and his Bible-based attacks on Darwin. This sometimes leads him to be unfairly presented as a stupid, backward-looking zealot. He wasn't. He was a very forward-thinking naval officer who had graduated top of the class from the Naval Academy with the first ever gold medal for a 100% passing grade. He was also so interested in science that he gave Darwin his copy of Principles of Geography by Lyle. This book was to have a huge influence on Darwin in turn. One of Fitzroy's major downsides was his pro-slavery stance which caused him to have a furious argument with Darwin to the point where it was touch and go if he and Darwin could remain on speaking terms, given Darwin's utter loathing of slavery. As Darwin recalled, quote, he defended and praised slavery, which I abominated, and told me that he had just visited a great slave owner who had called up many of his slaves and asked them whether they were happy and whether they wished to be free, and all answered no. 
I then asked him, perhaps with a sneer, whether he thought that the answers of slaves in the presence of their master was worth anything. This made him excessively angry. I thought that I should have been compelled to leave the ship, but after a few hours, Fitzroy showed his usual magnanimity with an apology and a request that I would continue to live with it. Fitzroy performed a dangerous mission, paying for much of it out of his own pocket. He was friends with quite a lot of famous scientists. He specifically didn't like the implications of the theory of evolution on Christianity, but he's hardly the last person to be in that position. He was prone to depression and fits of rage. He deeply feared he had inherited some of his depressive traits from his half-uncle, Lord Castlereagh, who I mentioned in distant episodes past. Castlereagh committed suicide in a fit of depression by cutting his throat with a small knife, a fate that terrified Fitzroy. Fitzroy often was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Despite the fame of his Darwin voyage, his political career went wrong when he failed as governor of New Zealand, despite the impossible circumstances he faced when he took the job. He tried to get back a naval command and, against Darwin's advice, took command of a brand new screw propeller ship on her maiden voyage, but then had to return home in a bitter bout of depression. The Admiralty had never paid him back all of the expenses of the HMS Beagle refit and voyage, and then, in 1852, his beloved wife died. Somehow, he recovered and founded the Met Office to provide weather forecasts. Yes, the modern Met Office that we Brits know and love. Naturally, the press absolutely tore him to shreds for every forecast that went wrong. Finally, one morning, Fitzroy had breakfast with his daughter, kissed her on the head and walked into his bathroom where he cut his throat open with a razor. Fitzroy was actually a somewhat unconvinced Christian when he started the voyage and in later life would become a biblical, literal creationist. He also believed in a geological theory called catastrophism which will come up later, and was reasonably popular in Victorian scientific circles. I can't emphasise enough how important the arguments in geology were in the 19th century. At stake were some huge questions, like how old was the planet Earth? How was it formed? And how had it changed over time, if at all? This in turn would give explanations for mountains, glaciers, erosion, fossil records, and much more. Sir Isaac Newton and many others had tried to work out the age of the Earth. The general consensus was that it was around 6,000 years old on the basis of biblical sources, but other scientists, like Lord Kelvin, felt the Earth was young at 100 million years. He assumed the Earth was a solid, static object and moved inexorably forward from there. Many physicists mocked Darwin and his absurdly long timescales for evolution. There is sometimes an enormous arrogance to physicists who treat other scientists and sciences as lesser because they aren't perceived as hard science enough, and there can be a barely veiled contempt for biologists. It was, of course, the 
physicists who were badly wrong in this instance, and evidence from naturalists, biologists, and geologists kept forcing physicists away from the purity of maths and into the realm of hard, objective evidence. Darwin attempted to argue that the knowledge of the interior of the Earth was insufficient to draw strong mathematical models and conclusions against the physical evidence, but he died without changing minds. His theory and his reputation were seemingly to be ground under the iron laws of mathematics and thermodynamics. Who could argue with thermodynamics after all? Undeterred by other evidence, Lord Kelvin recalculated the figure of the age of the Earth down to 40 million years. Eventually, in the 1880s, physicists were forced to accept that maybe Lord Kelvin had been perhaps wrong to base all the calculations on the assumption that the Earth was made of solid iron and do the maths from there, but it wasn't until the 1890s that the first cracks would appear in the dam. Lord Kelvin's assistant admitted that perhaps if the Earth wasn't fully solid, then maybe Lord Kelvin might have been out by a billion years or so. A couple of decades later, the use of radiation blew all of Lord Kelvin's theories out of the water and showed the Earth was more than old enough to allow for timescales in which natural selection would work. At the early Victorian stage, though, Lacking a precise age of the Earth, other theories were available for how things turned out how they did. The most popular was catastrophism. It was proposed by a brilliant scientist named Cuvier and basically stated that Earth changed through sudden catastrophic events. This was most often flooding, many felt, and therefore dovetailed with biblical and mythological floods. It was a way to explain how fossil seashells were discovered in mountain caves, amongst other things. It seemed to provide a way to fit a lot of the geological and biological evidence into a biblical framework. As Fitzroy himself would later say, It appeared to me a convincing proof of the universality of the deluge. I am not ignorant that some have attributed this to other causes, but An unanswerable confutation of their subterfuge is this, that the various sorts of shells which compose these strata, both in the plains and the mountains, are the very same with those found in the bay and neighbouring places. These, to me, seem to preclude all manner of doubt that they were originally produced in that sea, from whence they were carried by waters and deposited in the places where they are now found. Geologists like Lyon were exploring the world and they were seeing evidence. It was far older. For Lyon, the earth changed slowly and geological events occurred over vast timescales. Mountains didn't just spring up in a catastrophe because God wanted it. They happened over a period of millions of years. Darwin would need huge geological timescales natural selection were to work, and if he was right, then catastrophism and any biblical flood stories were knocked out of court as much as creationism, 
intelligent design, and large chunks of the early Old Testament, like Cain and Abel, etc. But all of this is being wise after the event. When he boarded the HMS Beagle, Darwin was a young man going on an adventure, full of scientific curiosity. He didn't set out to drive a stake into the heart of biblical literalism or young earth creationism. He just observed things and wrote them down. He kept endless notebooks. It was almost a reflexive action. Arguments about the age of the earth, missing links, half an eye, continental uplift, and so much more were in the future. Darwin didn't go on the HMS Beagle looking for facts to prove his preconceived notions. He went to see the world and collect samples of interest. It was pure science. His ideas came from looking at the evidence and drawing conclusions, then refining them, gathering more evidence, then spending years thinking about the implications. After a two-month initial delay, the HMS Beagle was able to start her voyage. Sadly for Darwin, they were quarantined at Tenerife, so he was rather disappointed not to visit. His stop at Cape Verde was interesting, as he noted the similarity of wildlife to that in Africa. His mind refused to accept they could have simply been created here independently by God in a moment of lost imagination. A more plausible theory was that they looked African because they had spread from Africa. He was excited to collect his first specimen, a common octopus, that in his inexperience he thought was a new species. It was one of his rare mistakes. He also noticed a band of seashells in a layer of rock 30 foot above sea level. How had they got there? Catastrophism had a hard time explaining things like this. After all, waves might lift seashells into a cave, they certainly wouldn't embed them into rocks there. But a low geological lifting of a layer of rock to a higher level, in line with Lyle, would work, Darwin mused. Darwin would go on to prove that much of South America had been uplifted in recent geological time, a discovery of the kind that would make most geologists' careers it was not really Darwin's most important work. One of the consistent things learning about Darwin is reading sentences in modern books about his various theories, saying Darwin has subsequently been proved right. From evolution to Carl Atoll formulation, to geological uplift, to so much more, is a constant reflection of just how much evidence he collected on the HMS Beagle. Over the coming shows on Darwin, I hope you will see why it was a more radical and transformative theory than any other scientific theory in history and why you almost certainly don't understand it properly. For now, we will leave Darwin at the start of his voyage, about to head off South America, Brazil and some exciting adventures. Take care and bye for now. Okay, thanks for listening everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. 
don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>